welcome to Mulwade Presents Queer Perspectives. For me, this event is all about um, trying to elevate what we talk about. It's about really getting to the depth of topics that are coming up day to day and trying to elevate our understanding of what we're discussing. And it's really important that we kind of move from that kind of surface level conversation to understanding people's different perspectives and elevating our understanding. Let's start with you, Tommy Bimini. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, so would you like to introduce yourself? Tell the audience a little bit about yourself. All right, babes. <laughs> I am Tommy. Some of you might not recognise me because I've got clothes on. <laughs> the other half might not recognise me because I'm not Bimini. The reason I'm Tommy today is she's a bitch. And um, <laughs> my therapist said that I needed to do more Tommy things because it will solve my problems. So let's see. <laughs> But yeah, I work as an artist, I do a lot of different things, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to be on this panel, so thank you for having me. Hi everyone, my name's David Allwood, and I'm really grateful to be invited to speak here today. Uh, thank you, Leanne, for asking me. Um, I run Homo Parody Queer Collective, uh, which I started out of lockdown, following a period of uh, loneliness and detachment from myself and seeing how that uh, helped finding a community and then trying to help other people do the same. Uh, and I also won Mr. Gay Great Britain. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little humble brag. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'm Michael Zerika. Um I started uh, It's Culture In It, to, I'm in 2015, to like get gay men, gay, bi and trans men out of the apps into the real world and yeah, so we've now grown into like 3,000 members uh, with groups in Sydney, um, uh, London, uh, where was the other one? Berlin. Uh, and yeah, so we like do like um, mental health walks, uh, we do theatre events, uh, and yeah, just like sort of like now monthly mixes as well. So that's me. Hi there, my name's Emily Witham. Um, I'm an artist, visual artist, who makes work about the lesbian experience, um, lesbian culture, butch femme culture, history, archives, and my own experiences as being a gay woman. And thank you for having me on the panel. I'm going to start with, well, if you're wondering why I've got my phone out, it's not because I'm going to Scruff. <laughs> I'm checking the questions that you guys are asking on Slido. <laughs> So, um, the first question I actually wanted to start with, which was from Darren, because um, I had a bit of a debate, and we had a bit of a debate beforehand about pronouns and whether I asked people to introduce their pronouns, and we had a good example at school. Um, this, this is a really great question. Um, so, from <laughs> so um, has the gay scene evolved with the introduction of pronouns? Has it brought positive changes or a stronger divide in our community? Tommy, I'm going to start with you. Well, I think the pronouns extend way beyond the gay community. It's not just gay people that can identify and self-identify or or use a different pronoun. So I think just the introduction or allowing people to feel or people that might not have felt like they've been able to express themselves fully or just having that as an option, I think, is always nice. And it's always like the thing the thing I've always said is I don't care what you call me. Call me a bad bitch. A lot of people in the bedroom call me daddy. I don't mind. <laughs> but it's all to do with the intent behind it, you know? You can tell if a person's been a dickhead. And if I'm walking down the road and someone is, like, heckling or whatever because of a certain outfit, you know that they're being nasty. You also know the intent behind. So asking people their pronoun 
is not disrespectful. And if you, if someone is offended by being asked, then I mean, I, I don't know, like that it shouldn't be. We shouldn't be, get offended by anything like that. But I think just allowing people, if they want to share their pronouns or the ability to do that, I think that's amazing. I can see both sides for, uh, for, for pronouns. Sometimes it can detach because our, our community are so good at putting people in boxes and saying that's that person, that's that person, that's a bear, or you know what I mean, all those kind of things. So maybe some people would argue that it's adding another way of separating us, but I think pronouns can really empower people. Uh, being non-binary is more than just being a different pronoun as well. And I know that a lot of people would actually not mind if they're referred to incorrectly, as long as it's done respectfully and it's, you know, it's just some, it's part of people's learning perspective. Um, so I think for me personally, I'm a he, him, and I would always recognise the fact that I am a he him when I'm talking about pronouns but to speak for some of my friends I feel like they feel so empowered by having a pronoun and having that identity now. When it comes to the the idea of the binary gender there's I mean there's the difference between sex and gender like the gender is the constructed view of society that has been created and I think I didn't fit into that when I was younger I was told to do a certain thing and I was shit at football I like broke my fingers you know like I felt like I was like being being held back or like bullied and I feel like just allowing kids to express themselves freely beyond the ideas and the limitations of gender is where we should be at and the discussion interestingly enough when I had on Drag Race I have a different view now of that in a way because Non-binary, I don't even know if I am non-binary. I feel like that that becomes a label in itself. The exact rejection of having the kind of uh, limitations of gender is what I was aspiring for. It's like, I'm just me. I'm going to do what I want. I'm like, wear a sexy wig and not tuck and all of this stuff, you know, like, it's me. But then non-binary then became its own category and it became a limitation. And I think there can be problems when discussions are had and people get hostile or like get angry and I think you can't expect everyone to know straight away you know like you no one has that right I don't have the right to walk down the road and expect someone to call me correctly if they've never met me and I think it's about like just having a bit more empathy and understanding of the human experience as a whole and allowing people to do what the fuck they want as long as they're being kind and as long as they ain't doing nothing wrong let him wear a thong, like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> the badge I've got on my head, um, I've made, and it says I'm still illegal in 56 countries, which I think is slightly outdated. I think it's 54 now, which is good. Um, but I think we can become really complacent in the West, especially, that we've got our rights and we get on with it um, and forget that in other countries, really close to us, they don't have the same. Um, I mean, anecdotally, me and my partner two days ago just came back from Thailand and we had to fly through and do a stopover at Abu Dhabi airport. And we were instantly aware as a butch femme couple, uh, same sex, female, female couple, we were instantly aware, okay, so she went to hold my hand and I went, we shouldn't, you know, because the laws here aren't the same. And we could see people looking at us, she's very visibly butch. Um, so we could see people, we were aware of a different attitude um, and it reminds me that it's not the same everywhere and not to get complacent because laws can be taken away 
And at the same time, I don't think we should always take laws as progress. We have gay marriage, but not always. You, you, I can have a wife. Can I walk down the street holding her hand without yeah. getting shit? Yeah. Not always. Yeah. So I don't think we should always take laws as progress. And yeah, they can be taken back very quickly. I recently went to South Africa and I have such an interest in how queer perspectives differ from where you are in the world. And for things coming out of Africa in general, so uh, you have like Uganda, um, there's there's so many countries that are still punishable by death. And I was asked the question, what would you say to those people that are in a country where they, their very existence uh, could give them the, the death penalty? The person that asked me the question actually said that the right answer is to tell those people to get out and to find somewhere else. Um, I have a kind of different perspective because if there's, you're, you're not going to be the only person that's in that country. So for us as queer people our community and togetherness is so important so it's all about not being by yourself and finding safely finding people with that uh, common sexuality or gender identity and feeling like you actually can belong anywhere in the world and obviously i say that with the word safely as well because that is obviously so important it's paramount um, but getting out and leaving those countries means that things will probably never change. Is there any law or anything that you would change to make it better for queer people to experience the world? I would definitely reform the Gender Recognition Act from 2004. Anything that's 20 years old needs a little bit of an update, babes. Do you know what I mean? Um, so when, we, when we're talking about the Gender Recognition Act, at the time it was such an incredible thing because, we, I mean, it was pioneering for people in our country that did uh, have a different gender identity. Um, but I, I personally feel like you should be allowed to self-affirm your gender instead of have a panel. It's so intrusive for trans people to have to sit there, all the administration alone, as well as all of the, um, the sort of scientific side of it. And also, you're basically treated like you have some kind of mental health disorder if you want to change your gender. And that's abs absolutely, categorically not the case. And also, all this talk about the gender-neutral toilets not uh, being scrapped and not being allowed in new builds, um, it's just t taking another safe space away from people that live outside of the, the gender norms and um, it, it definitely needs recognition that it needs to change. Gender neutral toilets are everywhere anyway. Yeah. Like aeroplanes, like that's a gender neutral toilet. Like no one's, do you know what I mean? Like, it, and also it, that whole debate in itself is just a look at like point a finger and look over there because trans people don't even make up, they take such a small percentage of the popula population and there isn't enough evidence to back up that they're a threat to anyone. We're experiencing so much of a rise in, in hatred here. So it's, again, it comes down to, I don't know how we do it. I feel like it's like an education, it's understanding and empathy. This is why I think this panel is important. It's like conversation, it's depth, it's different perspectives. Um, the trans hysteria last year was, for me, crazy. I, what that meant for me, one of the issues I had was that meant conversations coming up at things like Christmas or even work. How do you deal with someone that doesn't get it? So conversation, conversation is one thing we can sit around the table and kind of advance our perspectives. I'm sure, Tommy, you've experienced some people that just do not get it. How do you deal with that? Not very well. <laughs> no, you've got to try it. Like, in situ certain situations, family is a different story because I'm just like, whatever. 
Uh, which could be annoying because like sometimes they could be the most difficult but obviously I think trying to be calm and trying that is a good idea <laughs> but it's difficult those conversations can be tricky and I think when like people will use what going back to the media the media create a hysteria and the British media are one of the worst for that and we've, we've known that for years it's all it's all got an agenda and even Primetime TV has got an agenda, you know, when like Piers Morgan sat there debating people's, people's existence with people that aren't even part of that community. That's the issue as well, without having the conversations. I remember getting invited when I'd written my book, Release the Beast, which you can get. Um, I'd written my book and I got asked to go on this morning. I was like, oh, great, lovely. I had a gorgeous Bowman suit. And they were like, no, we want you to wear this outfit. And it was, my, it was a pink Tudor look I had. It was lovely, but it was a corset with a pink thong and big blonde hair and pink stripper heels. And I was like, what, at 7.30 in the morning? You want me to wear that to promote my book? Because they had an agenda. And I said, no. I was like, no, I'm not doing it because I know exactly what you're doing. And we've got to be careful because the media are so cunning and manipulative. And even social media, to an extent, like, people see the hysteria happening and then feed into it without actually knowing anyone that is affecting them. It's not affecting someone in Middle England that's like going to the pub at night. They're not, like nothing's happening. Like they're not experiencing that. They're just hearing this hysteria and it creates division more than anything. And the media is so responsible for that. It's the biggest control system we have in the UK now and it controls everything. Like Kim Kardashian's now gods, you know? Like everyone looks up to these role models and I think we need to, the media need to be, we've got freedom of speech, but I feel like there's a level of like, consequence that has to come with that you know and, and and how how we navigate it because there's always a different minority group if you look back over the last 20 years whether it's to do with religion whether it's race now it's now it's trans people Emily um, how do you think we can kind of make progress in some of these like bigger issues I think coming offline yeah I think coming into a room and talking to each other um, online there's a lot of like hatred between lesbians and trans people and you see them like this um, I helped run a lesbian club night. We've always had trans women there. We've always had trans people there. There's never been a problem. When we're in the room, face-to-face, -face, talking to each other, there's not a problem. And I think it's about coming offline and not throwing insults over social media and going to the pub and fucking sitting down and talking and asking questions and understanding each other face-to-face. -face. And I think that taking two sides of an argument and putting them face-to-face, -face, where you can see the expression, empathy, emotion... You're going to walk out and you're going to be fine. We've spoken a little bit about kind of external conflict, media, international law. But um, Emily, you kind of referenced some of that internal division. I think the big media execs, a lot of straight people, cishet people, and they can see how powerful as a community we've become. And I think a lot of it is trying to get us divided and infighting. So I think we've got to ignore that. And I think when we're all in the bars together, there's no problem. We're fine. But I think... They're trying to cause an argument. They're trying to divide the community because they can see how powerful we can be if we're together. I want to move on from media, but before we do that, I just want to ask one question about RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> but I, 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 I want to make it meaningful. And so if we look at some of that internal division, RuPaul's Drag Race, from what it started off as to where it is now, is very different. What would you change about it to make it have more of a difference? I'm out of my contract now, so I can say what I want. <laughs> I just think it needs to keep up the times, you know? I think, like, we we can't call a show 
RuPaul's Drag Race and exclude drag kings. I feel like it should be open for everyone, no matter your gender, no matter your sexuality even. I, there's, I understand like a lot of the time drag has come up through, it's a grassroots, it's come up through, it's come up through protests, it's come up through against um, kind of politics. I always viewed it as a, a kind of putting up a lens in a funny, piss-takey way about gender stereotypes and, and what's happening right now in the world. But I think we also need to like, yeah, keep up with that. And I think if there was anything to change, I think we shouldn't just have these like kind of token, oh, a cis woman is competing as a drag uh, on the drag. Because there's so many that do it. I know so many. Like I was at the glory, like East London. There's so many drag, like areas of drag that aren't explored. And that happens all over the world. And I think what Drag Race has done in a great way has has given me a career and also popularized drag to the masses but then it's also just a certain viewpoint of drag you know it's it's the most feminine view it's hips and corsets and it's not real you know it's like not it's like a hyper version I feel like it's not it's not as authentic so I think authenticity would be the number one thing it also has I would say it's probably gonna go viral isn't it um <laughs> it's become a it it was mocking it's become a it's become the show that it was mocking. It was mocking like America's not Next Top Model. It was taking the piss out of that format and then it's now become that for drag, you know? Like, that's the caliber that people think they have to go to. They have to, like, follow a route to do it, whereas drag came from, like, in within, you know? Drag was punk. I want to move on to the topic of HIV. This is a um, Mulwed Foundation event. And... Um, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to ask, what was your idea of HIV and AIDS growing up? Death sentence straight away. I think it was like such a, um, it was always such, like so, such a scary thought. Like, I'm gay and I'm going to contract the virus and get AIDS and then die. I think like as you're young, when you're young, like you don't really know that. Obviously growing up and then becoming so influenced by Madonna, I understood that like she was a real advocate as an ally for when the AIDS crisis happened. So thank you, Madonna. Um, but the conversation now, like we, I think we've become as a community, a lot more open to discussing it. Obviously there's still areas where people are, are like probably dickheads, but we have become a lot more, more open to it. So we get tested way more than any other community. And which is incredible, which is, cause obviously we, we do like it in the bedroom. <laughs> so we do go checked out. But the issue now is the fact that because it's so stigmatized, but it's now affecting a different demographic of people than it once did affect. And I don't know if the conversation's there yet because the contraction rate for HIV has now increased in the straight community as opposed to for like for the first time it's going up. So I think that's the next conversation and I wonder how they're gonna tackle it. And if it does become an epidemic or it comes massive, there's probably going to be a cure in five years. <laughs> David, what are your thoughts in terms of like, what was your idea of it growing up? And also the question came up there, like how do we make progress in the straight community as well? How, how, how do we move awareness beyond that community? I genuinely didn't know about it. Like I grew up in a small town and I didn't know what it was to be gay. My dad would like tut when uh, a drag queen like Lily Savage was on the TV or he'd leave the room. Um, yeah, I... 
HIV was not part of any conversation that I remember from being a kid. And then when I started finding more out about it, I had to learn myself. Um, I was scared and I didn't un fully understand it. And then when I started to become sexually active, I was not just scared, I was like terrified about the whole thing. Um, so it took a long, it, it's taken a long time for me to fully understand and actually uh, bust all those myths that so many people have about HIV that are completely mistruths from, again, the media, um, to then have this understanding and, and know what's happening. And then, um, if I may, I'll just talk about my own personal experience on um, HIV. So my husband is uh, HIV positive, undetectable. We got together 10 years ago, and luckily enough by then, I knew enough to know that that means that he cannot pass HIV on to me. Um, however, I, I went to Dean Street because I had questions. I wanted to live, a, uh, live with my husband, let's say, have sex with my husband um, without any worries. And, just to, and I mean, I'm just very lucky that I went at the right time because they were doing the PROUD study then and they were doing the partner study then. And the PROUD study is the first time that PrEP was trialled in the UK. And it was obviously the start of what, where we are now, where um, that people have free access to PrEP on the NHS. And so, like I said, I was very lucky. There's people that came before me and my generation where they weren't so fortunate. And uh, times are changing in terms of like science, but the stigma surrounding HIV, my husband can't take a pill to get rid of the stigma that surrounds it. And that's the, that's the most damaging part for people that have HIV. You can live a long, happy, healthy life. My husband is a beautiful, amazing person. And he's part of a community that are completely shut down and that are treated like lepers occasionally. Like, it's getting better. Obviously, it is getting better. Um, but I, I struggle with the whole HIV thing because I feel like we are all preaching to the choir here we all know we have this awareness and it's about getting that out to people that are now uh, it's in the HR it's in the uh, straight community um, just as much if not more and uh, I agree there's a possibility that now massive changes will be made due to that um, we have to keep fighting because this 2030 is coming soon, um, if anyone doesn't know. So um, the, the, the goal is to have no new cases of HIV in the UK by 2030. This is actually a global attempt, but UK has probably one of the strongest chances, I would say. Um, but this will only happen, it will only be successful if the stigma stops and if there's more testing, because that is the, the, the root cause of not testing is because of the stigma. People are too scared. Um, so while I've got a mic in front of me, I just want to say if you are unsure or if you are having sex that might lead you susceptible to having HIV, get a test. No matter what the outcome of that test, in the UK, you are able to get treatment and you're able to get support through any diagnosis. Michael, I want to come to you. So it was a death sentence for people. Like, so growing up, um, I remember like being... 18, 19, and going to the bars uh, and sort of seeing men, like, sort of looking after um, um, us young guys. And, sorry. Um, and then we threw away. So people changing. Uh, then they won't be at the bar. Then I've been to more funerals before I was 20 than I can remember. 
um, or sorry, not funerals, memorials, because we're never allowed at the funerals. Um, and then, um, like with the memorial pages, getting like I remember, like it was what, one or two pages, then it became page after page after page. And I never thought I'd be make it past 28. Um, back then, there was no cure, there was nothing at all, there was no tests. And I'll be 50 next month, but um, and it's just knowing that a lot of people aren't here. Um, and they are just, yeah, um, and then when all the sort of different, like sort of ACT came out and then all the sort of different, um, uh, um, the sort of combinational drugs as well, amazing. But I, like, there was, uh, back then there was still a massive stigma. Um, and I remember sort of like volunteering at a hospice because people were dying by themselves. So all you want to do is just go and hold someone's hand. Um, and that always stays with you. Um, and you can't do that anymore. But it was just, it's so visceral, like sort of just still shaking now, just even thinking about it. And then the tests started coming. Um, my ex was an asshole. Um, so I can't about that. But um, he, um, he, um, he contacted HIV without, like he was always cheating by my back. And I remember sort of getting tested. Um, and the first few tests were so like sort of, positive and negative, am I seroconverting, am I doing this? For, for about four or five years, I kept on thinking, this is it, this is it, this is it. So it's always a fear. Um, but we've come so far. We have, we have come so far, and I always want to make sure that the younger, um, younger lads um, understand how far we've come. There's still a fight to happen. Um, stigma's always going to be there, but as I said, like, the more we talk about it, um, the more people um, know about it. Um, I remember sort of someone saying, how come you always a person about HIV? Do you have HIV? I said, no, why would I? I just want to sort of um, have the conversation, break the stigma. Yeah. I'm going to come to a, um, an audience uh, question that's come up, and it's the most highly voted, I think. Another one from Darren, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you feel that the introduction and, and uptake of PrEP has eroded or diluted societal knowledge concerning the the hard-fought struggles and challenges experienced by older LGBT plus people. David, I'll come to you. Thanks. <laughs> I think um, so. There is a thing around prep now where there's like prep assumption, where uh, a gay person, for example, would just assume that everyone was on prep. Um, so the conversations around sex. Uh, have kind of stopped because people just have this um, preconceived idea that they're safe now. Uh, so PrEP is a, a really powerful tool for us to be able to live the lives we want to live and have the sex that we want to have. But uh, there's also an argument where it's become a little bit too, as like I said, assumed. And I think that the conversation is the most important thing. Communication during sex uh, is is massively important in terms of consent as well. So I've, uh, I feel like we have to recognise how far we've come and how essential it is that as long as people are taking care of themselves, their own uh, status and communicating that, it is quite staggering when you speak to a younger um, queer person uh, and they, they don't have much awareness of the history of our our community yeah. um, and programs uh, like what was that it's a sin yes. for example some people that was like a sex education program where they were like really is this a true story um, which is staggering for uh, I think probably for everyone in this room because it's so part of 
of us and it's so important if you want to change something you have to know what came before if you want to be a part of something you have to know what was already done uh, in order to become part of it and then to make uh, positive change I think um, a lot of younger queers recently I was talking to um, some 17 year olds and they'd watched it's a sin and they were saying oh my god I was crying so much and I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. And then later on in the conversation, they said, oh, we're talking about gay bars. And they said, we've been down Old Compton Street. Isn't it a shame that it's full of old cis white gay men? And I said, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but those are the ones that were in the programme. Yeah. These are the guys and they're the ones that survived. Yeah. So how fucking dare you yeah. moan that these old cis white gay men are in the clubs but then cry it's a sin. And I think people are so far removed thinking it was so long ago, not realising it's in the lifetime of that man in the corner of the club. Yeah. And I think it's really important to tell younger queers that it was really recent. Yeah. It was really recent. It wasn't 100 years ago. The amount of artists, creatives, people with points of view, perspectives, we lost a third of those people due to this and it's kind of forgotten about. Yeah. It's not taught about, well, I mean, education isn't in schools. I didn't learn anything in school about that, you know? It's all what we, we learn ourselves. But I don't definitely think there's like a level of, um, like we've got so far with our certain rights and I think there's a level of complacency that, that queers can have that they don't think it's going to affect them. But actually, we have to always remember and look back. I want to move on to the like the topic of queer um, and I've got some like interesting questions that I want to ask but before I ask the ones that I've prepared there's one here is qu queer is one of those terms we've, we've used it interchangeably in the, in the panel for different things um, what what is your definition of queer Emily I might come to you first on that one I call myself lots of things like overarching queer but it, it's, it contains so many identities. So it depends what kind of space I'm in. Also say lesbian, also say dyke. It's got more kind of political backing and more history to that word. Um, but I do really like the reclamation of the word queer because growing up, it was always a really derogatory word. Um, so I, I do like that it's been reclaimed. On TV, the word queer, and I don't think everyone's happy with it. Like I think some, my partner's 56, uh, so we've got an intergenerational relationship and I know some of her older gay male friends still see it as a word that they don't like because they remember it being used in a pejorative way towards them. So when it's used in like a corporate setting, it feels like, hang on, why is this straight person calling me queer again? So I think it's a really interesting word. I, I, I call myself it, but I know that everyone's not happy with it. For me, being queer, it, it, when I identified as queer it became such a relief for me because there's so much ambiguity to being queer there's so much freedom and it feels for me personally it feels so empowering to say that I'm queer um, obviously it was a derogatory term and I I was called it and that you know there's still that kind of for me there's a disconnection between that because of the intent and now my identity because of how freeing and how I just, I, I, you can identify as a gay person and queer, you can identify lesbian and queer, bi, and it, it's kind of all-encompassing. It's also separate, and it's special, and I think it should be, I, th I personally think it should be celebrated and it should be used, because queerness is, is different, it's, and it's, yeah, it's unique, and I love it. <laughs> it's, it's liberation, it's like, it's, it's taking back kind of the power from what you were, called or, or have been called all your life and like I think growing up I did feel different queer by definition is 
different to the norm is is what the derogatory was and taking that back and being like yeah i am different and what like i like it i'm i'm me i'm going to explore that and i think queerness doesn't it goes beyond um yeah it goes beyond kind of sexuality for me i think queerness is like the way i live the way i express myself it just feels authentic to me having that as a umbrella label as much as i dislike that i think it's a good umbrella but then cuz i don't know like my own journey is always different my journey's different to yours and yours and like everyone's got their own experience and i think queerness allows you to kind of be part of that community but then be individual as well and ex- and find out your own way so like you can get called so many things if i'm down Woolworth road i get called batty man so there we go i love it <laughs> <laughs> This is a, a question I wanted to ask, which was kind of moving on to queer culture. And, you know, a lot of us in the room embrace that and we kind of know what that means. But how do we, it's a, it's a bit of a controversial topic, but how do we feel about the use of queer culture by people like Harry Styles, for example? David, I'm going to come to you. Look, what we have is special, like I said before. And of course, everyone wants a slice of it. Um, and it's just unfortunate that it's, it's gone to someone almost being like the pioneer, where it's like, hang on a second, let's just rewind the clock quite a few years um, and see, yeah, decades, exactly, um, and see a whole history that these people might not be exposed to. So there's, you know, let him live and let him wear a dress and become an icon, but... It's just a little bit unfortunate because, like I said, there's so many incredible queer artists that came way before, yeah. And dressed way better. And dressed way better, yeah. That also, that didn't have a stylist because I'm telling you, he's not picking out those outfits. It's a queer, it's a queer stylist. He's got a queer stylist. Like, I know, the, I know his stylist. Behind every great is a queer. Facts, facts. Queer nightlife at the the moment is struggling. Do we feel like um, this is an assault on them or is it a development of the spaces that queer people choose to meet? Why why are these places struggling? That is the thing that we need to work out. There's there's so many answers to that and I feel like you can't just blame, for example, the chemsex scene, although that has a massive part to play in it because people are taking their parties into their living rooms. And not just chemsex, just, you know, drinking, socialising. It's staying at home, right? Um, So... I personally don't feel like the scene is struggling because of choice and options because there are choices and options for so many people but I do feel like the queer scene has become very separated and very um, boxed in. Obviously there was a lot last year about that um, for circuit queens particularly. and, you know, that's, that is a worrying thing. But I, I feel like everyone does have options, but it's working out why people aren't finding those options and also finding a way of uniting a community because, it, like, we just talked about how queer encompasses everything. So the nightlife scene maybe needs to reflect that a little bit more. It, it, you know, we've gone past the point where it, it's okay to just socialise with your group and to be separate. Um, celebrate the fact that you're standing shoulder to shoulder in a club with a trans person, a non-binary person, gay people, lesbians, even hetties. Bring them all in because we're stronger together. Do you know what I mean? And that's that's where the party is, I think, personally. 
I've always had that. Like the in, in, for me, it's inclusive, and it's like there's there's so there's a lot to dissect here. <laughs> the first thing I'm going to say is the fact in 2010. Since then, we've lost over 50 percent of LGBTQ plus venues. So we have already seen a decline. That comes down to not the fact that. There's, there's, there's the lack of demand or lack of need. It's because of property development in, in London and, yeah, particularly London. Over the last, like, 10 years, we've just seen all of these flats, you know, like these high-rises that a lot of them are empty. Places get taken over. GIY Late is now shutting down because of licensing. There's licensing issues that are happening, stopping, the part, stopping places. So that with that happening, there becomes lack of spaces. And particularly queer owned as well because a lot of these time the property de property development they are you're kind of running the space but you're actually being owned it's you're you're renting it you know you're leasing it so it's about protecting those that's why the royal Vauxhall tavern is amazing because it's been kind of heralded as a space that will not change and i think we need more of those because it's so important because i'm and then i don't know if this is a good thing but i wouldn't have been able to find myself if i hadn't been able to go to the clubs in 2012 when i first moved to london I went for 28 days every night when I first moved here, so <laughs> there were so many places. There's a lack of that. There's a lack of the spaces now because, and there's, it's, if you notice, yeah, there's a couple of pockets of areas, but it's more nights now that are happening. They're like more night, night focus, not a place where you can go on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday for like a little drink with your mates and watch a drag show. That, that, that stuff isn't happening. The Glory was a space where you could do that, and that's now shut after 10 years. They are opening Divine, so it's not, it's not all over. It's a bit bigger, but we need more spaces, but also not just bars. We need sober spaces. We need places and communities, whether it's community centres, whether it's uh, places where people can meet up like, and, and, and find people that they can kind of connect with in a way that isn't just on the apps. And that's why I do think the apps can be great. You can be like, oh, I want to have sex. I'm going to go on there and find people. Or you can find friends as well. But there is a definite rise in kind of the chemsex scene happening due to apps and lack of uh, lack of spaces, I think. I think that's a really interesting debate to finish over a drink. We've had some great questions come through. I'm actually going to... We didn't get to come to all of them, so I'm going to post some of them to our panellists behind the scenes and we'll post them on social as well, so make sure you're following. Um, but please give a round of applause for all of our panellists, Tommy, David, Michael and Emily.